Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Future Cities. I'm your host for the month, Stephen Elser. I'm so pleased to have Dr. Fuchsia Ann Hoover join us in today's episode. We'll be talking about green infrastructure, environmental justice, and how researchers and practitioners alike can better address environmental justice concerns in green infrastructure planning and implementation. Fuchsia, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Stephen. Before we get going, could you take a moment to introduce yourself? Yeah, I'd love to. Um, so so as, as mentioned, I'm Dr. Uh, Fuchsia Ann Hoover, and I am currently assistant professor in the Department of Geography and Earth Sciences at the University of North Carolina, Charlotte. Um, and I also am the, the founder and CEO of a consulting business called Eco Green Queen. Fantastic. And so could you let the listeners know what, what is it that you, you study in your academic career and how did you come to, um, come to find yourself studying that particular topic? Yeah, great question. Um, so the three main pillars of my, my research and, and teaching interests um, fall under green infrastructure, environmental justice, and urban planning. And so a lot of my interests um, you know, I think I, I had a strong interest in environmental work when I was an undergraduate. Um, and that, that really started actually from the perspective of thinking about renewable energies and um, sustainable waste management practices and, you know, LEED certification and, and some of the more uh, kind of engineering, um, civil engineering, environmental engineering approaches to the environment and sustainability. Um, and and for, for context, my <laughs> degrees are all in engineering and my undergrad was mechanical engineering. And so uh, that was really the first, the first spark um, when I had a summer study in Germany. And we basically went and did a tour of, you know, um, small, small towns and communities that were completely powered by wind turbines. And uh, university uh, technical campuses that were um, completely net zero and zero waste. Um, and, and really, you know, learning about the different types of approaches that you could take to have a more earth conscious approach to um, resource consumption and management. And so when I got to grad school, I'd like to say that I, I, I fell into water uh, because it wasn't what I was planning to focus on originally. But when I had gone on a, a tour of, of the university facilities to figure out what needs they may have, they really identified uh, a couple green infrastructure practices on their campus that they didn't really know how they were performing, how they were working. And so that's what I decided to focus on for my master's was a green roof um, that had been installed several years prior to do a water balance study. Uh, as well as an energy analysis to see, you know, how, how is this thing functioning? How is it performing, uh, performing several years after the fact? And then I really enjoyed that component, um, but I really wanted to talk to people, right? Um, and, and thinking about the need for these practices to exist in cities means that residents have to uh, adopt them, right? And if you're talking about residents and, and who are the people living in cities, um, in a lot of our cities, most of those people are people of color, um, low income residents. And so those are, those are groups that I didn't see represented in the research. 
And because of the, the percentage, right, that these communities make up in cities, um, I knew that if we were really trying to use these practices, and, and that is also inclusive of other types of best management practices and um, stormwater control measures, right, we really needed to, to engage and think about how are um, individuals that, that hold identities in those groups thinking about their environment, how are they thinking and, and conceptually and understanding flooding in particular and these different types of practices that they may see around their, their cities or their neighborhoods. And so that's, that's really how my work got started. And since then, um, you know, through the different positions I've held, I've, I've picked up different skills or, or new, um, new, new kind of theoretical foundations as a, a way to build on top of the questions that I'm already asking. Awesome. That was such a great uh, such a great background. I I knew that your undergraduate was it was a, it was an engineering degree. I didn't know it was mechanical engineering. That's such a that's such a transition from, from I guess from what all my friends that from undergrad that did mechanical engineering were always thinking about like uh, like engines and 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 things like that. So it's so it's just that's that's amazing that you were able to make such a transition to to a, a really different set of topics. I'm curious, during your undergraduate engineering training, uh, was there much uh, focus at all on, you know, how people connect to the sorts of technologies that you were being trained to like become an expert in? Or is that just sort of something that, that you naturally drew yourself towards? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it was a, a little bit of everything, right? So the, the undergraduate I went to, University of St. Thomas in Minnesota, they're, they're a, a liberal arts private um, Catholic university. And, you know, one of the things that we had to do when we declared our major was have a one-on-one -on -one meeting with our dean and talk about the, the ethics behind entering uh, the engineering field and what that responsibility means to, um, to the profession, to the communities in which you are creating solutions and, and building um, and, and problem solving, right? And so I think um, that that to me made a, a lot of sense, uh, just in terms of the, the the kind of severity that was stressed um, to us by by the dean. And we we took a so similar to the um, Socratic oath. There there's something similar in engineering, and then you have a ceremony called the the Order of the Ring. Um, not not at all related to one ring to rule them all. <laughs> but, uh, but, but, you know, it, it's part of, um, part of a more, uh, I think, intentional approach to entering the profession and, and deciding that this is, this is what you will do as, as a practicing engineer. And so I think, I think there was definitely that component. I think, um, you know, when, when I was an undergraduate student, I've, I've always enjoyed engaging with people and, um, I, I think I've always had a lot of friends that were in the humanities or in the social sciences, undergraduate through graduate and, and into my professional career now. And so I think there were a lot of elements that once I got to grad school were really great for me to be like, oh, yeah, like I, I like these things over here, but I still want to couple it with my engineering. Um, and it, it helps that I had really great advisors and mentors in undergrad. So you know, one of my um, research mentors 
he's also a mechanical engineer, but uh, he works a lot in climate change because his specialty is thinking about thermodynamics and, and heat transfer, right? And heat transfer is a big component of, of climate change when we think about where the energy is being stored, where it's migrating to. And then my, my other advisor, um, she, I think her background was, was in robotics originally. And um, she, she started a, a course focusing on thinking about movement and mechanics through circus play, right? Um, and she also developed um, something called squishy circuits, which is a, a Play-Doh material that you can use to teach children about circuits and, and how energy moves. And so I think I also had really great models for what engineering and engineers can look like when we, we combine different passions and different interests and think about, you know, what, what are the impacts on people? How do we bring people in? Yeah, that's, I, that's so important. And I think that also touches on a really important point for understanding green infrastructure. I know you and I took part in a symposia that was all about sort of thinking about green infrastructure from a sets perspective, a social, ecological, technological systems perspective. So, so valuable to bring together all those different perspectives to understand really complex, uh, really complex topics. Um, so yeah, totally really important and such an important part of just one's, uh, you know, professional training and just be, and just training as a person in general, <laughs> learning to like think about uh, uh, issues and other people from a variety of perspectives and realizing that, okay, everyone sort of comes from these different paths and, and, you know, th that leads to, you know, many different outcomes. So super yes, important. Exactly. I'm really glad that you highlighted that. Exactly. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree. Yeah. Um, so uh, green infrastructure, uh, we've talked about a fair amount on the podcast. And one of the things that has come up on the podcast is that it means a lot of different things to different people. So when you talk about green infrastructure, can you tell us exactly what you mean? Yeah. So so when I think about green infrastructure, um, I'm I'm considering it to be any type of, you know, net, network system or, or single standing practice that is being put in to do a, a particular function or serve a particular benefit or, or ecosystem service, right? So whether it is managing stormwater or reducing um, the urban heat island effect or, uh, you know, trying to improve air quality in some way, right? It's, it's kind of intentional planning of some type of, of green space. Um, that, that can be used in combination with, with non-vegetated materials, right? So thinking about like pervious papers, for example. Um, I am particularly interested in the, the vegetated components of green infrastructure, um, in part because that's where a lot of the, the terminology around, you know, it's multifunctionality or different um, health and, and well-being services or benefits are uh, attached to. But it's, you know, it is one of those things that depending on the city you're in, depending on, you know, whether you're talking to a planner or an engineer or, you know, a resident, right, they're, they're going to have different ideas of what that means. Um, and so even, even in Charlotte here, the, the common terminology is, is using best management practices for, for everything, right? Whether it's kind of out in, in an agricultural fields or in uh, the, the city itself. 
Um, but but often it's depending on your field, right? Though those can also have very different meanings. Um, things like stormwater control measures are usually kind of larger engineered practices to manage stormwater. But but yeah, I think you know for me it's it's really important to think about that that vegetated component, especially when we think about the the presence or absence of green space in cities and especially in in the communities I'm most interested in, in working in and and. Um, engaging, right, being our, our communities of color, probably Black communities in cities. Um, but, I, but I will say, like, quick plug, <laughs> there, there's two great studies that have looked at uh, the different definitions of GI that, that have recently come out. And so one is um, Spigniew Grabowski's paper with, with Stuart Pickett and Tommy McPherson and Marissa Matzer, I believe she's also on that paper. Um, and that came out last year. Uh, and then there's another paper that just came out with um, Marissa Matzler, Sarah Miro, and, and several other authors that looks at different conceptualizations of green infrastructure. And so we do see a really expansive, um, you know, in, in some ways kind of field-based, right? Whether you're thinking about if you're coming from ecology versus a planning background, um, de definitions and, and ideas of what GI is, what GI does. Perfect. Um, you know, so I guess speaking of, uh, of recent papers, uh, I would like to chat with you about a paper that you led that was published last year called Environmental Justice Implications of Citing Criteria in Urban Green Infrastructure Planning. So uh, first off, can you tell us a little bit about the motivation behind this particular paper? Yeah, so my, my co-authors and I, um, one, one of the things that we've, we've noticed and I think we've been doing in our own work, right, is a lot of kind of single site case study work. So um, Dr. Sammy Rowe, who, who I mentioned earlier, you know, she's looked a lot in New York, and uh, in, in Michigan, and I've looked at different green infrastructure practices in, in Omaha and Chicago and St. Louis. And one of the things that we were really curious about, right, was when we think about what we're seeing at, at these individual cities, right? Does this pattern hold across multiple cities, across multiple regions? Um, climatic zones, you know, size, population sizes in the United States. And so that was really part of the, you know, the, I guess that was, that was the, the kind of core motivation of this work was to have some type of large scale study that was looking at how green infrastructure is being cited at the, the local level, um, you know, parcel level across these these many different cities and in these plans <laughs> for sure no that was great and i i i love just the cross-city comparative approach i think that's so valuable a, a really formative um set of papers i guess for me when i was in graduate school were was the the paper surrounding urban homogenization um you know that cities from very different contexts wind up resembling each other quite quite strikingly in, in some cases. So like in particular, around like soil carbon or about how, or like what kinds of um, plants are in people's residential yards or even people's like perceptions of, of their residential yards are, are homogenized to an extent. But I think that's like such a wild, that, that was like such a, such a, 
such a cool idea to me when I was first reading about it. And and, and so, yeah, this cross-city approach, I think, is really valuable to sort of get at that to see if that's true for, for, other, for other things as well. I think that's really cool. Okay, so can you tell us what's the significance of siting criteria uh, for understanding larger scale green infrastructure planning and environmental justice issues? Yeah, so so I think this is in part is where my um, my, my engineering background comes in sometimes. <laughs> so so one of one of the things that we first learn in any undergrad engineering program, right, is um, we we take a class and and we have a lesson or a semester long project where we reverse engineer uh, an object, right? And and so part of the idea is that in order to understand how something works. Sometimes the best way to do that when you have limited information is to take it apart, right? And so that's really my approach with the the paper that you're um, that you're referencing, and and I think my work overall, right, is to really understand, or or rather, in order to understand, you know, the reasons why we see green infrastructure um, kind of shepherding in um, things like green gentrification or displacement, uh, we have to really understand what is behind that decision-making process in the first place, right? And so what, what is at that foundation of figuring out where green infrastructure is gonna go and why? And what are the, the motivations behind that? Um, what are some of the implications of that criteria? whether we are thinking about um, both, you know, positive outcomes uh, of the criteria um, and potentially harmful outcomes from the criteria. And so that's, that's really what the, the work and um, my, my goal is, is trying to break everything down to figure out, you know, when we look at that, that basic, um, even, even engineering based criteria, right? What, what are the potential ways that that could be interpreted um, when it gets implemented, right? What, what does that mean um, based, based on the things that are being chosen and how uh, the practices are being cited? Great. And could you speak a little bit about, uh, you know, potential implications or I guess we'll take a step back and say, what could you briefly discuss, I guess, how uh, green infrastructure implementation has so frequently been fraught with justice issues and sort of how that would relate to, to uh, some of the citing stuff that you're talking about? Yeah, so, so I think one of, the, one, of, one of the challenges sometimes when it comes to planning or, or it feels like engineering is there oftentimes isn't a, an awareness or a connection to the moving parts outside of your your project, right? If you think past the the constraints of the the problem that you are trying to solve, right? And I and I think that's that's where ecology can be so helpful is to think about things as a, a system that influences one another, um, that's integrated. And so, for for example, um, during and this, this, I'll give you an example from like before this work and then one from, from the criteria specifically. So when I was working in, in Chicago for my dissertation, uh, I, I did interviews there with city personnel, uh, different nonprofit pers personnel related to stormwater management and green infrastructure. And from, from the city, one of the, the interviews, um, 
with with an engineer actually I, I was asking them about uh, you know how how they make determinations about where they are going to invest in in these practices and one of the the criteria that's pretty strong um, was uh, residential density right so population density uh, so more more dense places were prioritized and then another one that was also really prominent was um, property value so they were perceiving that as you know higher higher property value means higher um, monetary loss. And so those are spaces to, to protect and prioritize first. And so what that inherently does then, right? And if, if you're familiar with Chicago at all, um, you know that typically it's segregated where the north side is predominantly white. Uh, much of the wealth of Chicago sits in, in communities like the Gold Coast. Um, and then the west and south sides of, of Chicago are both uh, predominantly black uh, as well as um, brown uh, Latinx and then uh, populations of, of Indian as well. And the other thing about Chicago is that the south and west sides are, are less dense, right? So there's been a history of, of disinvestment, um, there are, you know, lots of, of vacant lots or abandoned homes distributed throughout those communities. And so their residential density is not as high as the north side of Chicago. Um, similarly, right, these are communities of color. And, and I think more and more folks are, are realizing the power of redlining and the history of redlining and even modern day home devaluation of homes that are owned by black and brown people. And so that means that their homes are also not as valuable, right? So now there's, there's two ways in which they are not being prioritized to receive any type of green infrastructure, specific flooding management or, or mitigation practices in their communities. And so you know, if, if we use that as our example, right, then moving to the, the current work that I've been doing in the paper, we can see that um, with, with some of the, the criteria itself. And so, um, you know, by far one of the most dominant ways of citing green infrastructure was by thinking about the, the stormwater concerns, right? So where is current flooding or where are the um, outfall locations? where the sewer uh, water may be dumping into your, your river or your stream or your lakes. Um, and so, so on one hand, right, that could be beneficial because we, we also have a history of this in this country of um, restricting uh, black and, and brown other people of color to lower elevation lands, right? Um, lands that were considered less valuable were, were often more likely to flood. And so that's, that's an example where that particular criteria could actually be beneficial if that is how you're using to determine where these practices go. On the other hand, because the stormwater element is such a strong driver, we also see examples of communities, um, Black communities in particular, that don't want green infrastructure, right? They actually want gray infrastructure. They want uh, updated uh, pipes, right, or, or new grading of some kind to reduce the, the prevalence of flooding in their communities. And, and that is 
is being ignored, right? And so I think, um, so, so that, that's one example where you, you have a, a particular type of criteria that can go one way or the other. Uh, and, and I think too, as part of that, we, we also really need to think about um, from, from a financial perspective, green infrastructure is also talked about and, and used in part because it is a cheaper tool than some of our great infrastructure practices. And so now we have this additional conversation and, and kind of justice implication where um, if you are focusing these, these practices in lower income you know, communities of color uh, and, and you're in, instead using green infrastructure opposed to great infrastructure, you're still investing less in those communities than their, their white counterparts, right? And so I think um, those, those are the, the kind of interconnections that, that I'm interested in uncovering and, and teasing apart um, to, to figure out, you know, what, what type of criteria do we actually need? What, what does this need to look like? How do we truly honor and connect the things that residents need to the types of planning metrics that engineers in particular um, are used to? to sing and, and would be able to understand and interpret. Yeah, right. That, that, that's so important. And I was hoping now to talk a little bit about what, so maybe some examples of what that sort of criteria would look like. So in, in this paper, you, you found, you guys found uh, planning documents from, I think, 19 different cities and were going through these documents and categorizing the, the criteria of these different categories, uh, hydrologic, logistics, social, economic, transportation, environment, and other. So could you just give us like one or two examples uh, of, of what a criteria would be like in, in, in a couple of these uh, uh, categories for just for the listener? Yeah, so so the, the high, um, hydrology uh, group, which was the largest, right? Um, that, that stormwater component of, of where is flooding located or occurring, um, where are the outfall locations? Those, those were criteria types under that category. And then um, the, the social uh, group is where uh, we housed the, the language or, or any terms that we found related to environmental justice specifically or, or thinking about equity. And so, in, in that case, some of the criteria um, that I, I should say there, there was also very, very limited criteria that was focused or, or mentioned um, equity or justice when it came to actual siting. Uh, when, when there was, usually the focus was on some kind of distributional element. So either saying, you know, that the communities of color or low income communities would be prioritized um, there, there was also phrasing of, you know, historically um, di disinvested or ignored communities would be prioritized. And, and it only came up a, a few times, right? And in a couple cities. Um, so, so that's an example there. And then um, one, one of the other groups that came out of that work um, was this, this idea of feasibility or, or logistics, right? And that was really identified um, as we were moving through the documents. And that, that was really specific to, to a couple things. So 
so one, it was at times ambiguous, right? Um, maybe there, there wasn't an actual definition of, of feasibility, but it was a term that was frequently used in terms of, you know, we'll, we'll prioritize these projects based on their feasibility. Um, sometimes it, it was, uh, it was a bit more explicit, right? So it referred to um, specific spatial constraints uh, was one criteria point, right? Or um, constraints around where utilities were located uh, or, or even uh, looking at other existing projects that were going on that could be, um, or, or might allow for green infrastructure to be uh, kind of a, an amended piece to, to go in with it, or, you know, for if a project is tearing up a street in this particular spot already, then maybe we can add in green infrastructure because then we don't have to uh, tear the street up again or separately pay for the cost of some of that labor. So, so those are just a couple examples of, of specific criteria and um, what, what they look like under some of those categories. Thank you. Um, so could you then just tell us um, what, what were your main findings uh, after making these comparisons across across the cities? Yeah, I mean, I think the um, one of one of the biggest findings, right, is it, it, and uh, I should say, unsurprisingly, um, given my past work and, and the past work of my colleagues is that stormwater flooding um, needs around, you know, managing runoff and, and rainfall were, were the biggest drivers of where these practices are going. And then I think also, also unsurprisingly, right, um, environmental justice and equity, while talked extensively uh, in the kind of rationale motivation side of these practices and all of the different benefits and things that these practices can use, there, there was very little tangible connection from the rationale to the criteria, right? So um, while it's a big factor in, in how green infrastructure is talked about, there, there's a missing translation piece that we noticed. And then I think the the, the surprising component, right, was, was this idea of, of kind of the logistics or feasibility group, as well as how strong um, transportation was as part of the decision-making process. So both in terms of the practices being um, prioritized or are targeted in right-of-way or sidewalks or some type of kind of communal space as well as the, the tying and, and kind of cost-sharing component of connecting these practices to Department of Transportation projects that were already approved or in motion. And so that, that opens up you know, a whole other set of questions that I now have in, in terms of transportation funding and project management um, and the way that green infrastructure is appearing in, in a lot of cases to be embedded into other things. And so, that uh, that that in a lot of ways kind of obscures the process even more. <laughs> um, so so this this will be a a, a large ongoing project, um, and we haven't even started to get into the kind of cross comparisons of regions, right? So looking at cities that are grouped in specific regions and, and comparing across those groups or um, sizes of cities, and so there's there's a 
whole host of work that is still um, needed to be done around this. But I think absolutely the way that a lot of the the kind of beneficial cultural health well-being justice or equity uh, components that are discussed fall out once we get to the actual criteria of where these practices are going to go um, was was one of the biggest findings. Yeah, thank you. As you said, I'm also not terribly surprised by by a lot of that, unfortunately, so frequently. Yeah, I think maybe in large part due to the dominance of the EPA definition of green infrastructure, which very explicitly says green infrastructure is for stormwater benefits. I think it makes a lot of sense that you see so many of these green infrastructure documents uh, sort of, you know, pointing towards uh, water quality. So I'm not surprised about that. And uh, well, hopefully, hopefully, you know, pointing it out is will help inspire people to do something else with green infrastructure and be more intentional about, uh, you know, impacts that green infrastructure is having and thinking more about the connections that, that green, green infrastructure has with the community. Um, speaking of, uh, your, you, you conclude the paper by offering three main recommendations to cities to envision more uh, more just green infrastructure spatial planning. Uh, so the first one is to prioritize green infrastructure in communities that want and support it. The second is to explicitly state justice goals and accompanying, accompanying methods and criteria. And then the third is to implement green infrastructure alongside other policies that directly address systemic racism in planning. So could you expand a little bit uh, on these points that you that you conclude with? Yeah, yeah. So so I, I'll tackle them in the order you read them. Um, so with the, the first recommendation, right, this idea of prioritizing green infrastructure in, in the communities that actually want them and, and support them. I think that anytime we're thinking about, you know, repairing harms or um, working in communities that have been disenfranchised or excluded or minoritized in some way, right, there, there is first a, a very large power imbalance, right, in terms of kind of who you represent as the city um, or, or even an organization and the power that the residents have. Then you also have the issue of, of trust, right? Or, or rather um, distrust, rightfully so. And so I think because you have those two things, you you really have to be very, you, you have to be willing to, to let go of, of your baby, right? Or let go of, um, thinking that that you have the right answer and you know the solution or that your observations are more valid or, or sound than the the observations and the needs of the residents and communities themselves and that that takes a lot of release of ego that takes a lot of um, humbling in order to be able to do that and to go into a space and, and simply ask them like what do you need right or how can we help um and I, and I think there's also an importance in being honest, right? So if, if there are limited ways in which you can help and say, okay, we, we have this amount of money or this is the project idea, but if the residents don't want that, then, then you, you do not get to still move forward with that anyways, right? Because that's just replicating everything that um, communities of color have, have gone through already. And so 
I think the the other important part of that, right, which speaks to this this second recommendation of explicitly stating justice goals and and the methods or criteria associated with them is is twofold. So so the first, you know, one one of the things that we noticed was um, this idea of kind of what was explicitly stated versus implicitly stated. And and for example, when when it came to criteria around heat, right? Um, We we could assume that if uh, a a city was prioritizing green infrastructure where um, heat pockets are highest in the city, right? Or communities experience more, more latent heat than others, that those may likely be communities of color or low income communities because often they have fewer trees or, or other uh, vegetation that exists. That's not always the case. Um, and, and so that's an example of kind of an, an implicit connection to justice if we think about you know, what we know about demographics and, and other components of how cities are constructed. But that's that's not very helpful, right? And so be, being very explicit and saying, you know, these these are the communities we are prioritizing, or these are the people that we are prioritizing, and then that that second component of of being explicit and identifying those methods and criteria, um, you know, if if well being is important, what are the metrics that you are going to use to both locate those practices and also know if they are working. Uh, I I think this is a a broader problem, not not necessarily because there's no interest, um, but I think also because there's limited funding for evaluation-based research, there's limited knowledge in terms of how do you actually measure well-being and health in the context of being a planner or an engineer. And so that that is unfortunately the one of the things that is is critically missing right is changing the types of metrics that are being used if you are prioritizing um an an environmental justice approach or or equity and then the final the final one of you know implementing gi alongside other policies really speaks to some of that displacement that occurs uh and and the way that gi is housed in other projects right and so if you are not thinking about what else needs to change in, in the context of a city or in the context of um, you know, rent, rent control, right? Or buyout policies for corporations interested in, in purchasing homes in lower income neighborhoods, right? Or communities of color. Then I, I think you see this kind of expedited displacement because in a lot of ways, investment of these practices, particularly when it is tied to something like a light rail or a you know bike path, new trail um, system, right? Those those are very specific amenities that I think um, have not not traditionally and and currently right are not for uh, people of color for for low income people. Um, and, and we see that with the, the way that people of color and, and Black people in particular are more heavily policed and, and surveyed um, in, in areas where there's been green streets implemented, right, or on park trails. 
And so if, if you are connecting your green infrastructure to all of those things, right, by default, you, you are saying this, this space isn't for you, or it's, it's not going to be for you in a couple of years. And so um, there, there's then a lot of other things that you have to think about in terms of well, how, how are we going to ensure that um, those communities can remain in place or reduce, you know, the, the amount of um, in kind of corporate or investor uh, buyership. But I, I think that in particular takes a disinvestment and an interest in disinvesting from, from capitalism and then from this idea of letting the market um, dictate and, and run a lot of these different components. Awesome. Thank you so much for That's expanding. My, yeah. <laughs> my yeah. unpopular <laughs> no. opinion. No, no. I, that, well, at least I guess at least in my circles, I think that's a popular opinion. But I guess more broadly, maybe that. Right. Maybe <laughs> that. Uh, <laughs> uh, awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, yeah, I think those points are so great and a great way to, to conclude. It's just they're really powerful, um, you know, messages about you know thinking about green infrastructure more holistically as a part of this larger system, and then also just the need to be very explicit. Uh, with with your environmental justice goals in order to actually uh, you know achieve them. So I think that's really great. Thank you so much for summarizing those. We're running low on time, so I want to move forward. So in your little intro, you mentioned that you are the founder and CEO of your own LLC, the Eco Green Queen. I would love to hear a little bit more uh, more about this. I've never heard you talk about it. Uh, I think it's so cool that you have your own business as like an early career researcher. You're also a business owner. That's so cool. I'm wildly impressed by it. Uh, yeah. Can you tell us a little bit Thank about uh, about the inspiration behind, behind starting the business? Uh, when did it get started? What do you do? Uh, yeah. Tell me all about it. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll try to be brief since I know we're, <laughs> we're short on time. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so, so I founded the, the business in 2020, uh, I believe it was uh, end of August. And the big motivation behind it came from, you know, both, both the work that I was uh, researching and, and publishing and including the publication we, we talked about today, but also seeing both, both kind of how, how my colleagues were, you know, suddenly interested in environmental justice and wanting to engage with the, the rich body of activism and, and theory and research and, and also doing it wrong, <laughs> to, to be blunt, or, <laughs> you know, um, or, or not even knowing, like, where, where to start, um, what, what those connections are. And, and so there was a big part of me that um, was, was also a, a bit frustrated with, with that and, and just the way that, you know, folks would reach out and, and ask for information or, you know, even workshops or, or different, you know, speaking, things like that. And, I was, you know, it really became clear to me that um, people needed help. And, and in particular, like my, my researchers and, you know, possibly other students who were in graduate school needed a, a guide. Um, and so, so that was really the motivation behind it. And so my, my work then uh, through my business is primarily uh, both in terms of speaking engagements and then also working with, with researchers at, at whatever stage who are really interested in 
integrating environmental justice um, practices and theories into their work and into their, their questions. Um, so some of that has to do with, with teaching folks about how to be interdisciplinary, right? So, so if we think about the kind of the, the social environmental te technical components, right? How do you start to engage uh, a more holistic question that is thinking about interactions and different relationships? Um, and then the, the third part of, of my business, which I haven't um, expanded into yet, is, is then working with other research organizations or entities that are also interested in doing this work or having consulting work, um, per, perhaps because they don't have that expertise or they don't have someone on their team to be able to think about, you know, how, how do you translate those rationale or, or kind of motivational interests around um, equity and, and just decision-making to an actual uh, approach or, or implementation plan. And so that's, that's really the three, three parts of the work that I am interested in doing and, and expanding with my LLC. Awesome. That's again, so impressive that you're managing to do all this while like starting, you know, your new career as a faculty member and during the yeah. pandemic and all of this, it's like so cool. I'm very, very impressed by it all. Um, <laughs> okay. So we've got a few minutes left. Um, briefly, can you tell us about a green infrastructure feature that means a lot to you? Yeah. So I think, um, of, of my, of the green infrastructure practices and <laughs> kind of the, the options out there. Um, rain, rain gardens in particular, and also let me know if I'm like not interpreting your question correctly, but um, <laughs> rain, rain gardens to me are, are my, my favorite feature. I think one in part because they can be designed to be interactive, right? I've seen versions of, of rain gardens that include um, outdoor classroom seating, um, versions of, of rain gardens that include, a, you know, different types of, of native plants and other things that are, are also great homes for, you know, different, um, different insect species uh, within a, a city or, you know, who are traveling on a, a migratory path. Um, and so I think it's it's one of the ways that you can create both both kind of function, form, and fun, right? This idea that you you can have something that is serving the the environment in a particular way that also allows people to move through it and experience it and feel feel a bit more connected to nature as well. Um, and, and they can be really beautiful. I, I, not everybody likes them. <laughs> Sometimes they can look <laughs> a, little, uh, a little too wild or, or messy, um, especially if they are not well-maintained. But right. I, think, I think allowing and, and designing green infrastructure in a way that it, it really serves those, those three aspects um, is, is the feature that I'm most excited about. And I think that keeps me interested uh, in, in green infrastructure research and its possibilities. Nice, yeah, rain gardens are fun. I'm thinking of one that I saw when I was in Baltimore that was like next, it was like adjacent to a community garden and there were these nice little like informational like 
placards, I guess, telling you about what it is and what it's, mm -hmm. what, what is it doing? Like, what's its purpose to sort of let people know, no, this isn't just, this isn't just like wasted space. It's doing something for us and it's here. It has powers. And anyway, I think yeah. that's really great. Um, okay, so we're, we're running out of time. So I guess I'd like to end by just uh, giving you a chance to, um, you know, let people know if there's anything that you're working on or you have coming up that you'd like to promote and to let people know where they can find you uh, online if they want to keep, keep up with you and your, your projects. Yeah, yeah, great, great question. Um, so, I mean, I'm, I'm always writing. <laughs> so I'm working on a <laughs> couple uh, of paper that, that's looking at that, the rationale compared to the criteria to dig into, you know, what, what are some of the dominant um, motivators of green infrastructure and, and where are those lapses in um, translating that? And then, um, yeah, trying, working, working to hire graduate students <laughs> and, and some summer students to start this work. Um, but, but yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to taking a bit of a break, uh, this, this summer as well. But if anyone wants to find me, I have, uh, both the Instagram and Twitter where my handle is eco green queen, uh, no spaces for both of those. And then of course, uh, folks can reach me anytime by email, uh, through my institution at fhoover3 at uncc.edu. Awesome. Thank you so, so much, uh, Fuchsia. It was such a pleasure having you on uh, on the show. I, there's so much more that I want to talk to you about, but there's, we're limited by time, unfortunately. So uh, thank you. Thank you so, so much for being on the show. This was a really fun conversation. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you so much. I really appreciate the invitation. Um, and I'm, I've enjoyed it. We had a, we've had a good conversation. The Future Cities Podcast is an outreach effort brought to you by the Urban Resilience to Extremes Sustainability Research Network, or UREX as we usually refer to it. To learn more about UREX, visit www.sustainability.asu.edu forward slash urban resilience. If you have any questions, feedback, or suggestions for future episodes, you can email us at futurecitiespodcast at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at futurecitiespod. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.